When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Hello, welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we're putting the business back into lady business. Today, we have Ida Ekpudam from Gingerbread Capital. It's a venture capital firm that invests in gender diverse companies. Welcome, Ida. Hi, JJ. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Ida has an amazing background. So I first want to introduce you to her by having her introduce herself. So <laughs> tell us a little about what you do or how you got and, and how you got there. You're, sure. You're- yeah. So um, Edek Pudum, as JJ said, partner at Gingerbread Capital, and we back high growth, female founded and gender diverse teams. And we are looking for companies that where, you know, our focus isn't kind of that first money in uh, first check into a business. We're looking at companies that are uh, a little bit more established, product market fit and looking to grow. So when you're using kind of the VC nomenclature, our sweet spot is the series A and later. Um, And so, you know, we can dive into what all of that means and all the different stages, but uh, that's just kind of at a high level what we're looking for and what we do. Amazing. And how did you get there? Well, what, what, what did you do before this? Well, I'm a failed Nigerian doctor. I should have been Edek Kudam MD. So, you know, that didn't happen. I was pre-med, but post-college, I went to, you know, what does a, a person that did her degree in in um, interpersonal rejection senior thesis do. I went to Wall Street. I went to Goldman Sachs and I worked in banking and trading for my first five years out of college. Um, loved the people, still very close with the people, but I didn't necessarily love the work. Um, and it's funny, one of the things that I traded at that time was preferred stock, which is one of the key instruments in uh, early stage markets, the capital that uh, founders are raising. So it's kind of a full circle that instead of trading preferreds, I now work at a in the stage where you're issuing them for early stage companies. So from Goldman, I went to business school. After business school, I worked the traditional more corporate route. And I realized that, you know, I heard the stats of like, women will get to parity in corporate America in about 100 years. And I was like, no, I'm not, I won't be around for that. And I'm not sticking around for that. And I wanted to kind of go earlier and work with women who were building companies the way they wanted to see them from the outset. Um, and that's kind of were interested in me and in like my psychology degree and getting to actually interact with the founders because they still wanted input, guidance, all of those kinds of things that VCs get to do with earlier stage companies. So that's that was my path to here. 
Amazing. Um, very impressive. You know, I, I, want, I actually want to talk a little bit about the preferred stock in a bit. So let's like table that because, you know, when you said you were trading preferred stock, I was like, I never even thought about that, actually. It's starting <laughs> to happen in the VC market, the secondary, you know, once, you know, a company raises around most often in early stage companies, you're locked, that capital is locked in. And it's not like the stock market where you can buy and sell and buy and sell, but more and more because it's a much more illiquid asset in um, when you're at an early stage before, you know, IPO, things like that. But what is starting to happen and you're seeing more and more is that, you know, some people who maybe the founders want a little bit of liquidity and get some money out. So it's not just paper wealth or some of the early investors, you know, maybe people that were like friends and family, there's opportunities for them to cash out uh, at a certain point. So that's called secondary. So you can sell even a privately held piece of equity before it becomes a public company. If there's somebody on the other side that wants to buy it from you and the investors agree that you're able to do it. Yeah. Um, I just learned about that secondary market, like I would say a couple of years ago and have thought about trying to sell some of my stuff too. That's not out yeah. yet. Yeah. 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 And uh, you know, it's, it's that kind of trade-off. It's like, you know, when did you get in? If you got in super early, you might be okay being like, oh, I've made, you know, a couple hundred or maybe a million or two on it. I'm ready to get out. And then you trade off where you're like, do you think it's going to go higher? And am I okay if I miss the train, if I like get out now and I'm happy with whatever yeah. gains that I get? So it's thinking through those kinds of things yeah. uh, of like kind of what is enough for somebody. Yeah. Okay, let's now go back a little bit, though, to, you know, when you're um, gender diverse company, like, when do they come to you? At what point do they need you? And what do they need to have done in order to come to you? Yeah. So from our perspective, we like to say it's not, you know, when people are like, oh, I have this great idea. If I just had like a million dollars, I could get it done. We're not the people for you to come to then because, you know, all of our team were all ex-investment bankers. So we dealt with lots of really big publicly traded or very large private companies. And we love, you know, Lene always says, she's like, I fall in love with every founder. But what we like to see is a little bit of things that we can dig into uh, and think about, okay, do these numbers make sense? Is there a path where we think we can add value to help them grow? So from our perspective, we're usually looking for companies who have raised that initial kind of seed and they are now you know, got the product market fit, people are buying it, they need more capital to scale or build awareness about it to take it to the next level. So it's probably when the company is raising more like five, 10 million and more is where we like to come in and the check size and we are not leading rounds. So we're still a relatively new firm. Um, Linnea started in 2016, I joined her in 2018. And so what we call ourselves is kind of more collaborative capital. There's not enough female check writers and there's not enough, you know, places where I feel like female founders have that kind of safe space to give a call and say, okay, here's what I'm feeling. This is a stupid question. Like, call me. That's what I want to know about. And so that's where we like to play in. And the check size that we're writing is about 500,000 to a million, depending on the size of the round is a check that we'll write into a round. And then we, we like to stay in there. subsequent rounds, maybe continue to lean in and invest more after that. Right. So you hit on something um, I think is so key. And I talk about a lot, which is, you know, there's not enough females writing checks, but also, when you once you do that, right, you have a bunch of investors 
And, you know, they're not your best friends, right? They're like your parents when you're 13, you know, (laughs) but you do need somebody to confide in. And so you guys take that role and, you know, from a woman to a woman, it's like getting advice from them. You understand where they're coming from, right? So it's like... I mean, being a founder is lonely, you know, and every founder kind of knows that. And there's very few people when you are the boss, who do you talk to, right? Like everybody's coming to you for guidance. So the boss needs guidance too. And so, you know, whether it's having an outside coach or, you know, that's part of the partnership, the investor to the founder and the senior leadership relationship is to be like, I have this problem. I'd love some advice and feel, you know, safe that this is a space where you can tell them because it's better to tell it early than like have an investor be blindsided and be like, you know, why didn't I know this was an issue? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's such a great way of looking at it too, from a venture, from a money point of view, you know? Um, Okay. So then they come to you, what kind of companies are you guys interested in? Is there a certain sector that you work in? Well, actually, we're pretty open in this kind of first phase of gingerbread. We are our kind of thesis is women are founding interesting companies that are broad based and diverse. And so they are as diverse as the kinds of women in our portfolio. So we look at both, you know, consumer, consumer CPG type things, as well as product services all the way to heavy tech, IT, SaaS kinds of companies. So we have that spectrum of both B2B and consumer. I'd say we're probably uh, 60-40 consumer B2B. So you kind of see a little bit of everything in our portfolio. And for us, it's really, you know, you do see a throughput line of there's like a certain grit resilience in these women, no matter what kinds of companies that they're building, but they just have this kind of, I will not quit. And most of them, uh, not most of them, but all, a lot of them, you know, have struggled a lot and have been undercapitalized. So they've had to do a lot with not as much as, say, you know, some of their all-male peer founding team. And, they're, you know, I was just reading the report, I think PitchBook put out, like, that was looking at the trends and capital going to women is going up. But then when you stack it against, you know, female founded versus gender diverse versus all-male teams, you realize that while it's going up, the actual absolute number of what it is in the larger industry is still really tiny. And so, you know, for whatever reason that is, being an all, a solo female founder, an all-female founding team still is not going to get you as much money or has not gotten as much money as gender diverse or all-male teams. So yeah, you know, there's work to be done, lots of work to be done. There's so much work to be done. And it, what was the example of like these two female founders that created a fake male founder to raise money? I mean, you know, I like... I'm not surprised, but like the data shows that once you add a guy in there, I think for whatever be- reason, you're getting more money. And I think it's becoming a show. I know. wasn't aware of them. Uh, I got to find it again. I just read it like the other day, but there wasn't there a study that just came out saying that it used to be 2% of women and 0.5% of women of color. And it just went down for women of color. I mean, yeah, like this is not surprising in the, with the pandemic and things like that, it's been harder for companies to break through and but and more that already raised capital have been the ones that are kind of getting doubled down on yeah. so if you haven't already kind of gotten into the funnel it's become a little bit harder to just even break through so 
there's lots of, you know, there's when people say, oh, but you're only focusing on women, you know, aren't you like leaving money on the table? And I'm just like, this is an undervalued asset. Like you'll get a better return if you are backing something that everybody's not piling into just from a FOMO standpoint. And they have actually raised less money before they might have a liquidity event of some sort. Exactly. I know that's how that's a and people would say that to me, like, why wow, you're just representing women? Like that seems sexist. And I was like, yeah, and nobody says, nobody says of like all male VC firms or all male, any kind of firm. They're like, there's too many. Have you noticed there are too many like all male firms, but the minute you can name like five female led funds, I'm like, Ooh, the market's getting saturated. And you're like, you don't blink an eye if it's like an all male firm or, or think that that's an issue. So that's let, let's think about that a bit. Oh my God, I know. All right, so give us an example. Like one of the reasons that I, s- I started this, and you know, started the Justice Department, and started the podcast, is because, you know, I was on a call. I think I've told you the story before, but I was on a call once when I was helping a private um, equity company that who I'd previously raised money from, like look at an a uh, music publishing asset. Mm-hmm. And, uh, guys kept talking about dry powder, and I was thankfully this pre-COVID even, but I had to do it um, virtually. And I was like, what are they talking about? What is dry powder? And I like got to Google and I was like, really? Money in the bank? Like extra money? Like, why can't you just say that? Like, no, you gotta sound like you syllables have like even. No like, yeah. <laughs> where did it come from even? It's just like, what? And so it's like, I would feel stupid asking at that particular time. I later got on the call with private equity people and I was, and all dudes. And I was like, why do you use these terms? It's so stupid. No, like I felt stupid on the call because you're using these terms. And I was like, this is the issue, you know? So I was on with Karen Cohen. She kept saying SaaS company, SaaS. I was like, say what SaaS is. It's software as a service. It's like an Adobe or whatever. It's like, it's not like, doesn't just like flow off of people's tongues. Like, you know, so like talk to me about the difference between a B2B business and a consumer business. Just like, like give examples of what they are that you guys have invested in. And you can like talk about your companies a little bit. Absolutely. Well, let me think of something we've done recently. Uh, one that you know we're excited about that actually hasn't hit the market yet is going to be launching is this great, uh, this is an example of a consumer company, an actual physical product. It's a, it's a noodle company called Goodles and they're going after the mar- mac and cheese market. So think about mac and cheese. You think about two brands, I'm sure. What are they, JJ? Annie's and Kraft. Exactly. Like, can you imagine when you say a category and you can think of kind of the two biggest players in the category, it just makes it, it just shows that it's a space that hasn't been innovated in, in a while. So um, we have this company that is going after that space with a healthier noodle, but it's not, but it's going after it in a way where it's like, okay, you're a busy person, you're, you need to feed your kids, but you want to feed them well, but you're not like trying to be some kind of crazy, over the top nutritional focus, but nutrition is important to you. And it's funny because, you know, when we have these kinds of things, I was skeptical and I was like, yeah, do we need another thing? Plus, you know, it hasn't even launched on your shelves yet. And so the founder, Jen, sends a package over and I eat it and I'm like, wait, this is actually delicious. And the thing that I loved about it best was the noodle. Like it's the cheese and stuff and all the different things great, but like the actual noodle is really delicious. And so one of those kind of things, that's a product like mac and cheese, 
look for that this fall into 2022. It's going to, you heard it here first. It's going to be one that you What's that it people are again? talking about. Goodles, like gooder noodles, goodles. <laughs> Good exactly. By the way, yes, I know all about mac and cheese because my daughter would have Annie's mac and cheese every day if I let her. So. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So this is one of those that kids love it. Adults like you, you forget about it, and then you're like, oh yeah, this is something, and you're used to eating it at, at restaurants. So this is one of those. So that one's B two B consumer product. Everybody knows mac and cheese, and you na- nailed it. The two dominant players yeah. in the market. Yeah. So then on the other side, you know, actually, also wait, I'll stick with kind of the food, the food space, but it's kind of a different category. Well, no, it, this is more B two B to C. So that that's a good example of talking yeah. about a B two B to C. So a platform that we've invested in is called Zero Grocery, and Zuleika, the founder there, her whole. Um, ethos was she wants to remove single-use plastics from the food supply chain because we are making the world worse with all the plastics that we use that don't recycle, like they just don't degenerate for a hundred years. And so the whole premise here is that imagine that you could have your food, like the modern milk ban, where they don't deliver anything in plastic bottles, they go back to glass jars and things that you can recycle and send back. So that is the concept. It's like Whole Foods meets the modern milkman brought to you where you you use it, order it, and they send it back. So it's B2B in that they work with the supply chain of like the farmers and the various suppliers of the groceries, and then B2C in that you get it directly from them. They're delivering it to you, and they've built out the interface that puts that marketplace together of the farmers, grocers, and then you, the end consumer. That's a platform that kind of has that B2B2C. And then one where it's purely a SaaS, software as a service company that we invested in. So before I went into VC, after investment banking, but before I went into this world, I was a product manager after business school. So product manager is kind of like sitting in the the seat between, like the seat between talking to the engineers and talking to leadership and looking at your salespeople. So the people that help actually shape a product in a software, in a software-based company. Um, and that role is filled with a lot of manual Excel and all these kind of manual processes. And uh, this company called Dragon Boat, she was the product manager that took PayPal from like five countries to 240 companies, oh, wow. 240 countries. So, and she's done that at multiple, like four other companies that have become multi-billion dollar companies. And finally she realized, All of these tech companies have the same issue when it comes to building out the product management suite. Why don't I turn it into a company and bet on myself? So that is what Dragon Boat is doing. It's taking all of her learnings from what she did from PayPal throughout and turning it into a product, a software as a service that other tech companies can use to help them become and their product management teams become more effective. So that's an example of a pure enterprise software um, kind of product that is just, um, there's no tangible, it's software going into other companies. So I've given you the gamut of pure, you can eat it, you can, you know, watch it get from a farm to you. And then it's a software that you would never actually touch it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I hope they all do really well. I love the woman that like this dragon boat, like, She's like, wait a minute, why am I making all this money for men? Exactly, exactly. And yeah. her first customer was the last company that was, she was which just became a unicorn recently. And, and that's kind of when you've gone from $1 billion company to another and seen it go 
from yeah. small to big, you kind of think, oh, something I'm doing is has been a part of this. So maybe right. there's a business there and that's what she's done, which is really great. And I'm excited yeah. about it. Great. So when people, when women or diver, gender diverse teams, when they want to, uh, how do they find you? Like what gets them to you and what makes you most interested in them? Well, the sad, happy, whatever, what's standing out is, as we talked about, there's, you know, female check writers and firms that are saying female founders, gender diverse teams come to us. There's more than there were before, but there's not that many. So usually we do get a lot of people have heard about us or if they're thinking, oh man, I really wish I had more women on my cap table, you know, they kind of find us. And we've also made um, building relationships with other VC firms um, important to us. So, you know, we've co-invested with our good friend, Beth at First Mark, mm -hmm. having relationships with other uh, firms that have no gender mandate, but, you know, if they see a great deal or we've seen something that we can collaborate with, those are always great, too. So we don't only work with firms that only, you know, focus also on women. But we also say if you have a great female founder in your portfolio, uh, feel free. We'd be happy to take a look at their company as well. And then what kind of advice can you give them when they're going out for VC money? Um, yeah. What things have people done well and what, you know, things are they missing? It was interesting. I was on a conversation yesterday with uh, with a founder and we were talking about this. And that was the question that, you know, in the audience question is like, how do you start? And the first thing is kind of like, know yourself. What kind of business are you trying to build? Not every business is meant for venture capital. Not every business should take venture capital. And you have to understand like, venture capital we're looking for addressable market when they ask for the tam the total addressable market we're looking for that where it's a multi-billion dollar market and there's a potential for you to get yourself to several hundred million to a billion more outcome that's what we're looking for and if you are willing to give away a piece of your company, which is what happens when you take equity. That preferred stock that we issue that you take means you no longer own 100% of your company. So when you do that, those investors are expecting a return within a five to 10 year window mm -hmm. because VC firms tend to be structured in about a 10 year horizon and then their investors want their money back. And so thinking about that are, is, are you ready for the pressures that and the, the expectations that come from taking that kind of money? So if you are, then the next step is look around in the landscape. Who are companies that are like yours, but not quite, or maybe are like yours, but like an older version and you're better? Kind of find out who are the people that back them? You know, one of the resources that I say is really great Crunchbase. Type in the name of that company, scroll down to the financing part and look at who are the people that wrote checks into those companies and then start thinking, okay, well, if are they still invested in that? Would they invest in me or would that be a conflict? Or, okay, there's other firms that are like them and start going, try to find yourself a warm introduction. Cold emails work, but as an investor, I know I get a ton of just like emails, cold emails coming in, and I don't have time to be able to just respond to all of them. But when I get a warm intro from, say, like a Beth or somebody else in the VC community that I respect, have worked with, admire their track record, those are calls that I'll take. So that's important of trying to get yourself a warm intro and building um, building a network where people tell people about what you're trying to do. People get feel like, oh, I need to be super secretive about this. Somebody will take my ideas. 
like 10 other people have your idea. The power is who's going to get to market fast and execute it well. So keeping it to yourself is not going to get you to the point where you're going to find somebody that also believes in your vision, believes in you and can write you that check. So it's important to kind of do the background work of trying to narrow down so you're not just spraying and praying not all money is the right money for you. So try to be targeted and then set yourself up so that you can say why this is a mutually beneficial conversation and investment for your targeted investor base. So can you talk a little bit more about this? Not all money is good money for you, you know, and understanding like so often we hear these horror stories about, you know, founders and then they get all this money in and they have like 0.5% of a brand that you like you talk about all the time. You know what I mean? You think, oh, they're there. They must have so much money and like, oh my God, they they don't own any of it. Well, I mean, this is the kind of thing of like, you know, it seems great when you hear like, oh, somebody just raised like $50 million valued at all of this XYZ, hundreds of millions of dollars, or, you know, they get to the unicorn status. But you really have to look um, at before you kind of take that kind of capital and go through, eventually you have to deliver on the valuation that's been set for you, right? Like, you have to go and sell those things, make it, sell it, and see the returns hit the bank eventually. Because the worst outcome that can happen is you raise at a list crazy valuation, you don't meet it, and then what happens next is a down round, which is where your next round, if you're valued at 500 million, and then you go down to 300 million in your next round, you've been diluted, like you've been washed out by the next money, your company's worth less, you now own less. And so those are the kinds of things that start um, chipping away at the the value that the founder has. And at, at a certain point, I mean, yes, if you own like 5% of something that's worth 5 billion, it's better than 100% of 5 billion, right? Like, but uh, you also have to think about if you dilute yourself, once you're less than 50% ownership of your company, you can get removed from your company, right? Like you need to think about the math of the percentages of what you own and make sure that as you're giving it away, you're giving it to an investor that you believe believes in the same thing that you are rowing in the same direction and have the same vision because then you know you add your percentage to their percentage you know that you're aligned when it comes to key decision making but like that is the trade-off of the venture world and of taking outside capital you're giving away a piece of your company to hopefully help you get the capital and the advice and their networks to accelerate you to the next level so somebody can give you money and if they're not helpful to you at all like and then you flounder, was that was that necessarily the right money to take? Mm-hmm. No. Right. You talked about giving preferred stock. Like, can you talk a little bit about the difference between preferred and common stock? Yeah. So when you think of like the capital structure of financing a firm, think of it kind of like the building blocks of, of a company. So there's different types of capital that go into a, into a company. It's kind of tied to risk. So think about a risk reward. So if you're a really risk averse kind of person, you want fixed income securities. So that's kind of when sometimes you're starting out and you're doing convertible notes and um, a structure that's more fixed income. So what that means is think about a regular bond. It's like, you know, a defined date, it's five years, you pay like 5% uh, interest. And then at the end of five years, you get back your money plus the 5% interest that you got, you know, quarterly, annually, whatever on that loan. You can model out exactly how much you took. And it's the same thing as like your mortgage, same thing. Like, you know, for 30 years, you're paying this per month. And at the end, you own your house, the money is returned to the bank. That's bonds, that's fixed income. The next type, if you're taking risk and you don't, 
if you're maybe you're not selling enough to be able to service that loan, pay your monthly monthly um, interest payments, then you do what's called go into the equity world. And so the next kind of where there's still some limitations on the upside, but there's a, more freedom is think about preferred stock. So in preferred stock, there is no end date, right? Like it is a perpetual instrument. Um, and when you're issued it, you get the money and the person, the investor gets a piece of your company, but they get it from the standpoint that they are, they sit above the people that are common stock, but they're below like the bondholders. So the bonds still, if you went out of business, the people that got the bonds get the money first, then the preferred holders. And then the last people are, um, and most preferreds have, um, what will convert into common stock in the event of you get sold, you get like, you go public, it becomes common stock. So common stock is what you think about when you think of the New York Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. You buy and sell Apple stock, all of that is mostly common stock is what we're trading when you go public. And that is, you know, still equity in the company, but the perks and the upside is if Apple goes from a dollar to $2,000, you get to ride with that and you get that whole upside comes with it. But from the standpoint of the risk factor, if the company went out of business, you're the last one to get your money back. Mm -hmm. So bondholders get it first, preferred holders next, and then uh, common holders. And so in the private markets, the instrument tends to be preferred. And then the founders tend to have common stock uh, because they're kind of the, they're putting the most at risk, but they're also, you know, in it for the long haul. And then as you get closer and closer to a liquidity event, when it goes public, it is going public as common shares. Right. Amazing. Thank you for that little education. I never even thought about it like that, especially yeah, with the bonds, the like situation. Think about risk general. and reward. Yeah. Right, right, right. Amazing. Well, look, I could talk to you all day, but I know that you don't have all day and uh, you can hear my kids in the background. Um, so... <laughs> And you don't have all that. Yeah. I don't either because they're going to come in here any second. Um, So I always ask everybody this question, the last one. What is the worst advice that you've ever had? Oh, God. I think about this, that it's not necessarily advice. I've had lots of great advice, but it's a thing. It's like an actual action that I really hate. I think people's time is really important. And I think it's important that you let people opt in to having their time being used. So the thing that I hate, which I see often guys do the most is say, oh, you should know this person. And they just connect you without asking both sides, the person you thought that they should and the other one, if they want to know the other person or if they want to take that meeting. And so just saying, you guys should know each other and put people on an email and, and just leave it at that. That is a terrible thing to do for both of the people that you thought, because maybe somebody hates the other person or maybe somebody's like, I like, I really don't have time for this. You have not given them the choice. And I guys, for whatever reason, do that a lot. Is that drive? That is my like probably number one pet peeve of like making those kind of intros without getting double opt-in. So get double opt-in and then do it. Yeah, now I'm trying to think if I ever did that to you. I have done that. I don't think so. But also, if you know a person well enough, you'll know who they're like, oh, they would love this person. But like somebody that you don't know that well or whatever, don't do that. Don't do that. Love it. Words of wisdom. If you're reaching (laughs) out to Ida, do not do that. Double opt-in. Love it. Get a warm intro and double opt-in. Well, thank you so much for being on Taking Care of Lady Business. Thank you for doing this. I think ladies need their business taken care of and giving those kinds of insights. I'm sure uh, every guest, um, you just are like adding that wealth of knowledge for it. So thank you. 
Well, yeah, it's all your knowledge. So thank you for letting me to pick your brains. Um, if people want to reach out to you, how did they do it without just introducing you to somebody that you don't know already? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from the standpoint, I always say like, really, that warm intro, if somebody, if you met me, or we met at a, at a thing, you know, write that like, oh, I saw you speak at this, or you met, we met this one time, blah, blah, blah. Or if not, like find somebody that knows me and have them like reach out uh, yeah. because that's also it will make sure it actually gets responded to in a timely fashion. But otherwise, like I speak of things, I go to things, blah, 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 kind of, you know, find you. Find- yeah. yeah. By the way, shows you how committed you are, right? If you want to raise money, if you're like stalking Ida, I know I, I often have people like say like, oh, you, you're linked with somebody on LinkedIn. And I was like, I let everybody in. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of those other things. And like, oh, I have like a perma, like a, a graveyard of LinkedIn. I was like, we've never met. Or if I spoke at something and then it's just like, you know, LinkedIn, that's the other thing I say. It was just like, if you've never actually like talked to me or had like an interaction, don't just throw out a random LinkedIn. Like, what? Like, what is that? Like, yeah. what is the point? So I now no longer really accept those. I'm like, do I met them? Did I do yeah. something with them? Like now, right. so there's a bunch of people yeah. sitting in Perma LinkedIn. Basically, you have to reach out to me and I'll get, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, JJ makes excellent intros. So yeah, I will take JJ's calls. Hilarious. Uh, Well, thank you everyone for listening to this episode of taking care of lady business. Make sure you like subscribe and let us know any other topics that you want to hear about until next time. I'm Jennifer justice. Thank you for having me.